Let's turn together to read from Romans. We continue our series in Romans and we've reached chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 verse 1 through to verse 13. Romans 9 verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was started. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. Now imagine uh, you find yourself maybe in... uh, 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 at the head of a race, maybe a marathon, something like that, or maybe some sort of uh, procession that you're involved with. And you're right at the front, and there's this huge horde of people following you, either running or processing behind you. And then you think you just look over your shoulder to check they're still there, and you turn around and you see that actually somehow they've turned off. Maybe the signage has been wrong or something or somebody's got the wrong idea and they've turned off to a side street and they're no longer following you. But if you know, if this was a movie or if this was uh, something on a TV show, you know that perhaps later on down the road they will rejoin again. We might be tempted to think that uh, we might be tempted to finish our series at the end of the glorious chapter 8 of Romans. Indeed, many do seem to think that chapters 9 to 11 are really just a a big digression as Paul goes off-piste before we get the practical stuff from chapter uh, chapter 12 onwards. But not at all. That's not the case. These chapters are actually central to Paul's whole argument through this book as he shows the truth and the consistency and the glory of the gospel that he's very keen for these Roman Christians to keep on supporting and holding to. In chapters 1 to 3, you may remember, he was very clear that all have sinned, Jew and Gentile alike, 
are unrighteous, all need saving in order to be brought back into good relationship with God. But the good news is that God has provided a way for all to be saved, Jew and Gentile, not by works, but by faith, faith in Christ, who is God's righteousness, righteousness of God. Chapters 4 and 5 tells us that actually this doesn't mean that God has found a new way of working. He hasn't changed his pattern of working because actually Abraham, the father of the Jews, he was saved in exactly the same way. He was saved by faith too. And so all who believe, says Paul, are now children of Abraham, whether Jew or Gentile. And then the heckler in Paul's head starts up. Well, okay, chapter 6, if we're saved by faith and not by works, then once we're saved, shouldn't we just go on sinning so that grace may increase, grace may abound? No way, says Paul. If you're united to Christ by faith, you've died to sin and you've been raised to a new way of living in which sin has no mastery over you, should have no mastery over you. So what's more, chapter 8, we're now empowered by the Holy Spirit to live this way. And all of this gives us, if we're following Christ, the glorious security that we have at the end of chapter 8, based on God's eternal purpose, so that if we are joined, if he has joined us to Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. At which point, The heckler in Paul's head pipes up once more. What about God's word? What about all those promises in the Old Testament given to Israel? Well, if the majority of Jews are rejecting Christ, which was certainly true in Paul's day and true in our day today, how can God stay faithful to his promises to the Jews? Paul's response is visceral. In verses uh, 1 to to 3 there, this is not just uh, cerebral theology for Paul. He feels this deeply. He says, I have great sorrow. He says, I have unceasing anguish in my heart when he sees these Jews who are not uh, putting their faith in Christ. He's just celebrated the glorious reality that nothing can cut us up from cut us off from God's love in Christ Jesus. But now he says he almost wishes himself cut off, cursed, cut off from God's love, if it could mean salvation for his Jewish brothers and sisters. Cursed, the word is anathema. It brings to mind Moses. Remember Moses on the mountaintop receiving the law from God and he goes down and while he's been gone, those Those faithless people of Israel have made themselves an idol, a golden calf, and now they're worshipping the idol instead of God. And Moses uh, crashes, smashes the tablets of the law to pieces and goes up once more to, to the mountain to find God wrathful against his people. But Moses pleads in Exodus 32, forgive them, Lord, forgive them. But if not, if you don't forgive them, blot me out instead. That's something of Paul's heart here. In verses 4 and 5, he lists the great blessings, the great privileges and responsibilities that belong to the people of Israel. But what is interesting about these is that actually he's mentioned a number of these already in this letter. 
But actually, when referring to all believers, Jew and Gentile, not just Jews. So, for instance, the adoption of sons. We had that in in, uh, chapter 8, where he said, those led by the Spirit are sons of God. Um, The divine glory. Um, Well, in Romans chapter 5, he said, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And in in chapter 8, he talks about those who predestined already. He also glorified in Christ. Uh, Even that, the mention of the patriarchs uh, makes us think of chapter 4, verse 16, where, where the greatest patriarch of all, Abraham, is called the father of all who believe. All who believe now stand in the flow of these wonderful privileges and responsibilities are now uh, have been grafted into these things however note that also paul paul doesn't say when talking of israel he doesn't say theirs was he does say theirs is it's not that these are no longer true of israel even though believing Gentiles have been gloriously grafted in. But that still leaves the question, what about Jews who don't believe in Christ? Does this mean God's promises have failed? Well, Paul Paul says, no, it's not as if. It's not as though God's word has failed. Um, Verse 6. And he's going to spend the next uh, three chapters showing why God's word hasn't failed. But he starts here by saying this. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. His argument seems to be that right from the start with God's choosing of Abraham and Abraham's descendants, there was actually a further selectivity within that. Verse 7, nor because they are his descendants, they are all Abraham's descendants. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. That is a quote from Genesis uh, 25. Abraham had two sons. The first one, Ishmael, was born to his slave girl, Hagar, following some some unfaithful uh, schemings by Sarah and Abraham. But God had said, it's through Isaac, not Ishmael, Isaac, that your offspring offspring will be reckoned. The child of the promise is Isaac. Now, no Jew would argue about that. No Jew would argue for the inclusion of Ishmael in the promises. And so Paul is saying, look, right from the start, there was this narrowing down. But somebody might say, well, of course Ishmael wasn't regarded as Abraham's son. He wasn't Sarah's son. And the promise came to Abraham and Sarah. And so in verses 10 to 13, Paul turns to another example. This time, Jacob and Esau, twins, born to Isaac and Rebekah. The same father, the same mother this time. But even before they were born, God said in, in Genesis uh, 25, God, uh, God made his choice in election absolutely clear. He said there in Genesis 25, the older will serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob. In order, says Paul, verse 11, that God's purposes in election might stand. This is nothing to do with Jacob's goodness or fitness or better character because God has chosen him, a naughty, a naughty soul. 
God, but do you see, God is choosing to narrow down that line of promise further in Jacob and not Esau. And then he quotes from Malachi, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now by Malachi's day, writing um, hundreds of years later, these characters represented two neighboring nations. And that's what he's referring to, Israel and their neighbor to the southeast, Edom. Uh, and there was absolutely no love lost between these, uh, these nations. When Moses led Israel up out of Egypt, Edom refused them safe passage. They had to walk round. Um, in Saul and David's day, Israel attacked and fought against and conquered Edom. According to Psalm 137, when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, Edom cried, tear it down. They rejoiced over the fall of Jerusalem. Well, God is sovereign over all nations. His reign extends to the whole earth. He has providential care over all nations, including Edom. But God was working in and through Israel in a way that he simply wasn't doing in Edom. Israel was at the center of his purposes in a way that Edom wasn't, even though Edom could claim their ancestry back to Abraham. Now, this quotation from Malachi is very strong language, isn't it? Esau, I hate it. We struggle with that. Well, maybe it's a a strong Hebraic figure of speech to emphasize comparison compared to Esau. He loves Jacob so much. Maybe uh, you might remember Jesus talking about uh, his disciples' um, hating their fathers and mothers, by which we take him to mean that even strong family ties have to come, have to be relativized beneath our commitment to Christ. Perhaps Malachi is saying here that God's loving purpose was so strong towards Israel that his dealings with Edom seem like hatred in comparison. Maybe, and this is quite likely too, he's, he's thinking of Edom hatred towards Israel and he's showing his utter displeasure in that. That is really quite likely. But the purpose of this quotation in Paul's writing here in Romans is that he's backing up that previous quotation, the older shall serve the younger. In God's purposes, Edom's destiny is peripheral compared to Israel's. And he's He says that this is in order that God's purpose in election may stand. So we have this doctrine of election once more that gives us so much um, uh, problems, so many problems in our heads. God's sovereign right to choose and to work through whoever he pleases to choose. Now, of course, we shouldn't forget that embedded within the story of Jacob and Esau, there's also the prince, another scriptural principle, the principle of human responsibility. Esau loses his place to Jacob. Why? Well, because he sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. He didn't value God's promises. He didn't value his heritage. He didn't value God's blessing. That's unbelief. Esau did not believe in that. All he wanted was what was here and now. He wanted the food. 
And so, as always in Scripture, we get these two train tracks running parallel. Divine sovereignty. God chooses human responsibility. We have the free offer to follow him or to not. And those two run parallel through Scripture. And we trust that these will somehow come together in eternity, just as parallel lines meet on the horizon. But this raises many questions for us. We can't pretend it doesn't. And there will be more of this next time. But at some level, at least, we have to swallow our pride and say, God is free to choose, to save, and to work through whoever he chooses. None of us deserve his salvation. When it comes, it's purely by grace. And God is free to choose whoever. But it's this narrowing down that Paul is interested in here. It's key here. Within the nation of Israel, in Paul's time, there now seemed to be a further narrowing down of Israel. Some Jews believed in Christ, but many didn't. But that doesn't mean God's word has failed, says Paul. God has factored this in right from the start. And in fact, he's not only factored it in, it's, he's decided to work in and through this. He, this is his way of working. This narrow, narrowing down is all part of God's purposes. In uh, verse 5, he talks about the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all. Christ's human ancestry is rooted in Israel. He's a child of Abraham. Christ, uh, well, he's not just, when he talks about Christ, he's not just using Jesus' surname there. It's key that he uses Christ rather than Jesus. Christ means Messiah, the anointed one, the great representative of God's people. Just as God's people, a nation of priests, represent the whole world to God. And in this sense, Jesus the Christ is Israel. The purposes, the hopes of Israel rest on his shoulders. He takes up the mantle. And the ultimate narrowing down happens. When this one man comes and takes on that mantle and bears its sins, Israel's sins, the sins of the world, to become the place where God deals with sin, the sacrifice that will draw death's sting, the great champion riding out on behalf of God's people to win the great victory over God's enemies and Israel's enemies, the coming king who will bring in God's glorious rule completely and forever. And that happens as God narrows down his purposes and chooses Christ. And wonderfully, as God chose Christ in that narrowing down, narrowing down that purposes to one man means that from that moment, his purpose, his salvation, his kingdom opens up. It starts to broaden out. So that now, not just, or not just to all in Israel who put their trust in him, but all who believe across the whole world. It widens out. Even, dare I say, any surviving descendants of Edom, if there are any, if any of those turn and trust in Christ, they are included. Paradoxically, the narrowing down has led to a great widening out. Well, there's so much more uh, to uh, come. But after Paul's opening sally into this 
area into this argument, let's note three things as we draw to a close. First of all, God is sovereign. He is in control. He can freely choose who he wants to work through, who he wants to save. We can't avoid this. So that God's purpose in election election should be sure. Um, We don't like this. It causes us problems. It hits our pride. But what God says, what God decrees, goes. Yes, we are free agents with the responsibility to make real choices. We can't avoid that either. But behind and beyond that, God is working out his purposes and we can't thwart them. Not ultimately. And if that were not true, none of us could be saved. Because none of us would naturally choose to follow him. And if that were not true, if God were not sovereign and in control, none of us could be secure in Christ. There would always be the chance, the possibility, that uh, uh, we had got it wrong and we would throw it over. And yeah, that raises loads of questions for us. It, It does, doesn't it? But if you're watching, and maybe you're concerned that you may not be included in God's chosen people, I simply say this. You've heard the gospel. Turn around, repent, believe, look to Christ, follow him, cling to him, and you are in. Absolutely. And we can argue about how much of that was God working and how much of that was your free choice afterwards. Cling to Christ and you are included in his promises. He won't drag you in kicking and screaming against your will. But when you hear him calling, you'd better respond. And don't put it off. Don't say if you've grown, this is, I think this is particularly true of those who've grown up in a Christian home. Don't say, oh, well, yeah, I believe that. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll live out my life. I'll concentrate on what I want to concentrate on. I can just concentrate on Christ later. No. A, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. B, as you do that, you will harden your heart. It will become much, much harder to turn back to him later. Turn to him now. Respond now. God in his sovereignty moves in mysterious ways. He he has worked not only despite the rejection of Israel, but actually through the rejection of Israel. It was through the seeming disaster of his son dying on the cross that he brought life. Let's marvel at his sovereignty and let's worship him for it. Secondly, we see God's promises to Israel have not failed. Yes, it's true. The New Testament picks up all those glorious appellations of Israel from the Old Testament and applies them to all who believe, Jew and Gentile. As in 1 Peter 2, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. They're they're applied to a mixed church there. But that's not because the church has replaced Israel. That's the wrong word entirely. We Gentiles have been gloriously grafted into God's purposes. Though many Jews have rejected Christ. It's like we've joined the procession, whereas many Jews have turned off onto a side street. They're no longer following 
God's way through. But certainly there is no different track of salvation for Jews outside of Christ. This is what some people argue, that Jews will be saved another way. But there is no salvation other than in Christ. And so no Jew can be saved unless they commit their life to following him, unless they recognize him as the Messiah. All God's promises, all the heritage, all the wonderful um, culture of the Jews are yes and amen in Christ. Did Paul expect a massive revival among the Jews? I think he did. I think he looked back and saw that they'd taken off a side street, but I think he expected a, a huge turning back towards Christ at some point before Christ returned. And that would almost seem to fit the pattern of a narrowing down followed by a widening out. And if, as is the case, Israel's rejection of Christ leads to us Gentiles receiving life, then as Paul says later, how much more glorious will be Israel's acceptance of Christ? How much more wonderful that will be. And then thirdly, we have to note that God passionately cares for Israel. And this is surely reflected in Paul's passionate language here. I think he's mirroring God's heart when he talks about great sorrow, anguish of heart. This is what God feels. When we think of God's electing purposes, we should never think of him as a cold, calculating accountant of souls, throwing away Israel like a sacrificed pawn once he's finished with them. His heart aches. This is the God who said, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And as we Gentiles read that, remember that in Israel's disobedience and obstinacy, they're simply representing, mirroring the rest of humankind to God, including us. So actually, this is his heart for us all revealed. And if this is how God feels, then shouldn't we feel the same? Where are our tears in prayer? Where is our zeal to share Christ? Yes, of course, with all people, but especially with Jews. Passionately praying for all Jews and for the secular state of Israel as it currently is. Yes, we should be excited by and support enthusiastically the work of people like Tom and Esme and Messianic Testimony as they build up relationships to to hold out the gospel to the Jews and as they encourage others who are involved in that work. What a wonderful work that is. Let's share God's passion and his yearning for those things. Let's pray that there will be a great rejoining of the procession of the race by Jewish people as God continues his purposes, as we humbly pray for them. God is working his purposes out. His purposes are not easy to trace from our perspective. When we are able to see them from his perspective, and we can't yet, we will just have our minds blown by what he has done above and beyond 
all we can imagine. Let's give praise to his glorious name. Father God, we thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your sovereignty. We realize, yes, it does cause us problems as we try to get our head around it. It seems unfair, perhaps. But Lord, we bow before you and your wisdom and your heart of justice and equity. And we acknowledge that as if as we stand in the promises that are fulfilled in Christ, then it's by grace, nothing of us. It's purely by grace. And our heart goes out to all those who have not turned and received those, the fulfillment of those promises yet, especially those descended from your holy people, the Jews, Lord. We, we, we pray that you will go on working in them to open their eyes and lead them to Christ. Father, you are so good to us. Your gospel is glorious. And we praise and worship you because of your son, Jesus in whom the purpose, your purposes have narrowed down so that your kingdom can be broadened out to include even us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.